Steve for leading us in those hymns. I do so enjoy those hymns. Um, I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Psalm 23. We'll be looking at Psalm 23 this morning, and um, just as a note, when a pastor told me about a week ago that uh, he wanted me to fill in, I asked him, you know, what do you think our congregation needs to hear? And uh, he pointed me to this psalm, and I think uh, just, just keep, keep that in mind this morning as we study it together. Psalm 23. And I've entitled this morning's sermon, Life is Hard and Then You Die. Life is hard and then you die, and immediately you know that this is going to be a heartwarming and uh, a heartwarming sermon. You know, life is hard and then we do die. Life can be reckoned to a, a hard road that we are tasked to travel. And at the end of that road is death. This might sound a little bit pessimistic to you, but when we strip our lives down to their bare bones, I think this is an accurate picture. We begin our lives as a journey at the point of our birth, and we end our journey at the point of death. Every step we take on that journey, every day we live, is another step towards the day we die. This life then is not our home. We are just passing through like, like the turnpike on our way to our final destination. It's the way it is for all of us. It's the way it's been since the beginning. And life is not an easy journey. By and large, life is a difficult journey. It's a hard journey across a harsh landscape fraught with difficulty and pain. Granted, it's not painful all the time, but everyone at some point finds themselves in a valley. We will all face overwhelming pain and darkness at some point in our lives, and no one is immune to this. What are some examples of the valleys we face? Well, it could be that tomorrow you find out you lose your job. You find out that your marriage failed. Perhaps your spouse abandoned you or your parents abandoned you. Perhaps your child dies. Or perhaps you're involved in a horrible car accident and, or perhaps you fail out of school. Perhaps you're a victim of identity theft. Perhaps you're physically attacked. Or maybe you're a victim of sexual abuse. Or maybe you begin having serious health issues like cancer. And on and on, there are many dark valleys in this landscape of life. And in fact, you've always, you've heard the saying, um, our pastor says it, you're either going through a valley right now, you're just getting out of a valley, or you're just about to enter a valley. Either way you look at it, you're never far from a valley. And guess what? This is no accident. This is the world after Adam's sin, after which God cursed the earth. Listen to how God describes the human condition after the fall in Genesis 3.17. This is what he says to Adam. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are what? 
dust, and to dust you shall return. That sure does sound like our life. And life after this harsh world, we die. Ah, you say, well, it must surely be different for believers, right? Believers must be exempt from these valleys. Actually, no, it's just the opposite. Just the opposite. Life is often harder for a believer, listen, precisely because they know God. The valleys can be deeper and the hardships even more severe. There's multiple examples of this throughout history, but I'll just consider a few of them through the Bible. Consider Job who the Bible describes as a blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. A man that is blameless and upright and fears God, has a relationship with God. This righteous man loses everything. His entire family, his sons, his daughter, his wife, his livestock are killed. He loses his house, his livelihood, all his money, and finally his health. All because Satan decided it might be fun to see what would happen if he took this righteous man and stuck him in the deepest valley that he could find. This is because of his relationship with God. Or consider the apostle Paul, who for the sake of Christ was beaten times without number, often in danger of death, in danger from rivers, robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. Paul says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty seven, I have been in labor and hardship, through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. All because Christ, all because Paul knows Jesus Christ. That doesn't sound like an easy life to me. Or consider, finally, King David. This was a man who lived through the death of his best friend. He was for long periods of time on the run as his predecessor pursued him relentlessly to kill him. Later in life, his own daughter was raped by his own son. And then this son was murdered by his other son. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know if I could live through that. And that's just scratching the surface of his life. David, despite being described as a man after God's own heart, was surely a man acquainted with many trials and many valleys. And this shows in the Psalms as he cries out to God in many times of distress. So think with me, the landscape of David's life was a harsh landscape filled with many deep valleys. And I think it's with this model in mind that King David penned Psalm 23. I don't think we can fully understand that Psalm unless we have this in our minds. The, the, the worldview, the, the view of life that David takes in Psalm 23 is as life as a journey that leads to death. Now, understand, I've painted a bleak picture of David's life, but David, as you know, was not, in general, a morose or depressed person. On the contrary, his psalms show him to be an exceedingly joyful person, a, po- a person who drips with happiness and with passion. So the question then before us this morning is, how can this be? For someone who has faced so much tragedy, so much discomfort, so many valleys, where exactly does David derive his joy and his comfort? We'll find the answer in this Psalm before us, Psalm 23. Let's read it together. Here we go. 
The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valleys of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou dost prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou hast anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, I pray that as we look through this psalm, you would feed your sheep. Lord, you would teach us what's in this psalm for us. And you would, Lord, help us to apply it in our lives. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, this is a familiar psalm. You guys have, have all heard this many times, and perhaps some of you have committed it to memory. But I want to just tell you the overall message of this psalm before I get into it. And the overall message is this. We as believers, as well as unbelievers, have to, diverse, have to traverse the treacherous landscape of life. Okay? So that's the same for believers and unbelievers. The difference is that those who know God, those who know God, don't have to navigate this tough landscape by themselves. Instead, they have a shepherd. Remember, the landscape of these lives for an unbeliever and believer are not vastly different. There will be valleys in both. But even in the, dark, in the darkest valleys, believers have a shepherd. They don't have to go it alone. And the whole point of this psalm is to introduce you to this shepherd and to increase your confidence in him. So as we work our way through the psalm, I'd like you to observe with me three guarantees that the good shepherd makes to his sheep as he leads them through their life journey. Three guarantees of the good shepherd. We'll see in verses one through three, we'll see the first guarantee is provision. He will provide for us through the journey. In verses four and five, we'll see the shepherd's guarantee of protection. He'll protect us through the journey. And in verse six, we'll see that he promises he guarantees that he'll bring us home to paradise. So if you're into alliteration, it's provide, protect, and promise paradise. I worked hard on that, so provide, protect, and promise paradise. So let's get into it. Verse one, the psalmist begins, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord, David says, this incomparably mighty God the creator of the heavens and the earth, absolutely sovereign over every element of creation, existing eternally, transcending time and space, this God, David says, is my shepherd. And I think the emphasis in this line here is on the word my. This is an intensely personal psalm for David, this entire psalm. He does not say the Lord is a shepherd, he does not say that the Lord is the shepherd of Israel at large. No, David is expressing his personal relationship with God himself. And the amazing fact is the intimacy that is expressed by David here is the same intimacy that every individual believer, you and me, can also 
views can also well, actually do have with the transcendent God. He is yours and he is mine. We have that intimacy with our shepherd. But note carefully, the Lord is not everyone's shepherd. He is not, he is emphatically not the shepherd of the whole world as the world would have us think the psalm is saying. Rather, the Lord is a shepherd only of those who know him, only of the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't know Jesus, if you have never placed your faith or your trust in him as the savior who takes away your sins, he is not your shepherd, but rather he is your conqueror. He is not your greatest comfort. He is your biggest problem. The Lord, instead of being your shepherd, if you don't know him, will be the one who is sitting on the throne, judging you for your sins and casting you into hell. So let's be clear about that. This verse isn't saying the Lord is a shepherd of the world, but only of believers. Now, in order to really understand the imagery that David is conjuring up by, by comparing the Lord to a shepherd, I think I need to tell you a little bit about sheep and shepherds and how they operated back in David's time. I was looking this week at um, one of our children's Bibles that we have in our house, and um, I was looking at how they depicted this verse with blue skies and rolling green meadows and white sheep kind of fluffing about and um, bored looking shepherd sitting, leaning against a tree, kind of falling asleep with his harp. Um, Nothing much to do, right? This is some kind of sheep paradise. Um, But David likely did not have that in mind at all. Remember, David himself was a shepherd. He knew exactly what it was like to be a shepherd in that place and time. So what was it like? Well, the truth is, in that part of the world, there is lots and lots of desert. Green pastures are actually pretty hard to find, and they're the exception, not the rule. The, the landscape is uneven. It's filled with rocks and sand, and for large parts of the year, there's lots more brown than green. And in fact, if you've ever been to LA, uh, Southern California, this, it's kind of the same sort of climate. Um, I remember when I was living there, um, there was months where it was just, just yellow, the whole landscape. This is a country that was filled with long, hot summer days and frequently under drought. It wasn't easy to find pastures, and once found, a pasture could be quickly consumed or polluted by defecation. And then the pasture could not be reused until it was, until the grass regrew. So shepherds would then have to continually find new pastures for the flocks to move to. And that's why they would be constantly moving around. So that's the environment. It's not some sort of sheep paradise. Um, that's, that's the environment that David lived in. And, and now a little bit about the relationship between a shepherd and his sheep. And by the way, I don't want you to miss the fact that in this whole analogy, comparing God to his shepherd and his believers to his sheep is flattering neither to us nor God. It really isn't. If the Bible weren't so full of this imagery, it would actually be a pretty pretty shocking way to describe God, bordering almost on being blasphemous. Because a shepherd was considered to be somewhat of a lowbrow occupation. It was inglorious, humble, dirty, and dangerous work. If a lion or a bear would get a craving for a a yummy lamb chop, and uh, would come and steal one of the sheep, 
the shepherd would then be responsible for retrieving them at the risk of his own life. In fact, David himself describes this in 1 Samuel 7, 34. I'll just read it to you. He says, he used to keep sheep for his father. And when they, there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, this is David describing himself, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has, t- talking to King Saul, your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defiled the armies of the living God. Of course, at the end of there, he was talking about Goliath. But he was talking, this is nothing new. I've, it's not like this is my first time in battle. Being a shepherd wasn't an easy occupation where you sort of laze around all day. This is real danger and real fighting. You had to be willing to get your hands dirty. And it was maybe because of this that shepherds had such a close connection to their sheep. And this is amazing. Shepherds actually gave each of their sheep names. And even today, and it's for a purpose, because even today, this is true in the Middle East where um, shepherds uh, still, still are there, when sheep from two different flocks would mix at a well, uh, owned by two different shepherds in that region, then the shepherd, when it's time to leave, can divide out his own flock simply by calling his sheep, whereupon they would know and hear and follow the shepherd's voice. Is that amazing? But if it's unflattering for God to be identified as a shepherd, then it's downright insulting for us to be called sheep. Because sheep are probably the most defenseless, and defenseless, helpless, stubborn, dirty, and dumb animals that you can ever find. Uh, one commentator actually, actually describes them as walking Q-tips. I think that, that was probably right. When they're under attack, they're totally helpless. They have no sharp teeth. They have no claws to defend themselves with. Uh, they can't even run fast. When they get dirty, they can't clean themselves. And on top of all of this, they're stupid and stubborn and prone to wander. Remember in 1 Peter uh, 2.25, Peter writes, For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. That's Peter talking to, in the letter that he's written to the believers, but um, he says you were continually straying like sheep because it's commonly known that sheep stray. In fact, sheep are so dumb that it has been known, it's been known for them to walk straight off of a cliff. Um, they're dumb, defenseless, and dirty. There's another bout of alliteration for you. Um, so it takes incredible humility for David to happily identify himself as a sheep. And of course, you may not want to think of yourself that way, but un- until you understand that you are also like a sheep, then you don't really understand your true spiritual state. Because our sinfulness makes us all incredibly dumb spiritually. Just like the sheep who will wander right off of a cliff, we frequently wander off into sin and self-destruct, don't we? Even after conversion. Sheep is exactly the right animal to compare us to. Now, back to the verse in verse 1. David has, has all this in mind when he says, the Lord is my shepherd. And the next line is David's reaction to his truth. Look back at verse one. David declares, I shall not want. Now, the sense here isn't that you get everything you want. 
Um, but some translations put it this way. I lack nothing. I lack nothing. David has no lack. David is saying, everything I need, God provides. I am completely satisfied with, God has prov- with what God has provided me. And this is a declaration of utter trust in the Lord's provision, as well as contentment in what the Lord provided. Now, understand, he's not promising that every shiny object that comes your way that you desire, uh, you will get. That's not at all what he's saying. Why? Because by and large, you probably don't need it. All right? He gives you what you need, and most things in the world you don't need. Oh, sure, you know, we have many things that we want, don't we? But that's not the same as need. In fact, recall what James 4.3 says about why God sometimes will not give us what we ask for. James says, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own what? Pleasures. Lots of things we think we need, we simply only want. And remember, we're just travelers passing through this world on a journey. Ultimately, we can take none of this stuff with us, right? So why should we worry about it? Why should we fret over it? It's not worth it because none of it will last. What's more, none of it will actually make you happy in the way you think it will. In fact, the the drive to acquire wealth often leads just to the opposite of happiness. Listen to 1 Timothy 6, 9. For those who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Contentment does not come from acquiring much wealth. And listen, the the real prize isn't to have lots of stuff. The real prize is contentment. The ability to be content with what you have is the real treasure. And Paul tells us the same thing just a few verses before that in 1 Timothy 6.6. He says, godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world. So we cannot take anything out of it either. And listen to this last part. He says, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. See, you need to eat and you need clothing. And that just about sums up your needs. If you have that, you have nothing to complain about. And the Bible says that other stuff, really not important. You can take it or leave it. Sometimes God gives it to us. And sometimes not, but that's a pretty convicting messages. Uh, sorry, a pretty convicting message for us Americans, isn't it? Where we think everything we want is what we need. What you need, David says, is, is this David is saying in Psalm 23, the shepherd will freely give you. And you know what's better than having all of that stuff that you don't need? What's better is that you have the greatest prize of all, which is the shepherd himself. You have the shepherd himself. The Lord is my shepherd, David says, right? He is the only possession that David truly treasures. And he is the only possession that we ought to truly treasure as well. Everything else is temporal. So let's move on and and see more specifically what God promises to provide. The shepherd promises to provide in verse two. Verse two says, 
David is saying, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Now, typically in the, in the life of a shepherd, um, a shepherd would find a pasture in the morning. The, pa- the, the, shep- the, past- uh, the shepherd would try to find a pasture to lead the sheep to, and he would let the sheep graze for several hours. But upon uh, noon, upon midday, uh, it would typically become very hot, right? And um, then the shepherd would try to find a shady and a cool place where the sheep could lie down. Um, in fact, this is even referenced in the Bible in an unlikely place. And um, it says, tell me you or you whom my soul loves, where do you pasture your flock? Where do you make it lie down at noon? That's actually in the Song of Solomon 1.7. And you know you're in good shape when you can fit in a reference to Song of Solomon in your sermon. Um, but sheep lie down for two reasons. First is to rest. Sheep, if you drive them too hard all day, they'll actually die. So they need rest to survive. But there's a second reason why sheep need to lie down. And that's because sheep are ruminating animals. And ruminating, of course, doesn't mean they sit there and kind of think about life. And that's not uh, what ruminating means in this context. In this context, it says um, ruminating means that you have a special digestive system where you chew your food twice. So in the morning, you chew your grass and you, you swallow it into a special compartment in your stomach. And then at noon, you regurgitate it and you chew it again. And it's actually also called chewing the cud um, in, in the scriptures. Um, so you might have heard of that. So the sheep need to do this. This is part of their eating process. Uh, this is how they get nutrients from their food. So, and it turns, it just so happens that sheep do this primarily when they're lying down. And to make sheep lie down, the shepherd has to then ensure several things. First, he has to make sure that the sheep are well fed because otherwise they have nothing to chew. Second, he has to make sure that they're well protected because of course a sheep is even more vulnerable to predators when they're lying down. And, and third, they need, the shepherd needs to ensure that the sheep has enough rest. They don't get driven to exhaustion. So, so those are the three things. And, and of course, in the next uh, half of the verse, um, it says, the shepherd leads me beside quiet waters. So this is the picture of a clean, refreshing pool of water, not rapidly flowing water, because you know, if you're by a river, the sheep will essentially just get washed away. Um, they're that defenseless. So the sheep, if, a, if it's a quiet pool of water, the sheep can drink without danger. So this whole verse is saying food, water, a safe, place to, a safe place to rest. The good shepherd provides all these things for David. And he provides the same for you also. Um, this is repeated by Jesus in, in the, the book of Luke, uh, chapter 12, 29. It says, do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink and do not keep worrying. For all these things, the nation of the world eagerly seek. But your father knows that you need these things. But seek his kingdom and these things will be added unto you. So it's true throughout the Bible, this truth that we ought not to have to worry about what to eat or what, to, what we, we're going to drink, what we will wear. God will provide these freely for his believers, these physical needs. Now, I think that when David says this in the psalm, he's thinking primarily about physical needs. But it's also true, of course, that we have spiritual needs and God provides them as well. God provides both. In fact, remember in the book of Matthew, when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, Jesus said, man shall not live on what? Bread alone, 
but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So spiritually, we need the word of God to live just as much as we need regular food. And Jesus also speaks of spiritual rest in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. See, spiritual rest is being able to give up this tiresome and futile endeavor of working yourself into God's favor, finding our righteousness in our works. Because really, we can't do that. We can only find righteousness in Christ. And that's where we can find rest. We don't have to work anymore. In Christ, we can find forgiveness and freedom freely given. That's spiritual rest. So food, water, and rest in the physical sense, as well as I think in the spiritual sense, God freely provides all of you and me. But that's not all he provides. In verse three, he says he also provides clean cleansing and healing. Verse three says he restores my soul, right? So in the literal Hebrew, this is, can also be read as he restores my life. He restores, he's restoring my life. And the picture here is of a sheep who has almost died and who is then brought back to life. You see, this is the first hint in the Psalm that life isn't all green pastures and still waters, is it? Because this sheep can be injured and once injured requires restoration. So what's going on here? Well, some commentators have suggested that this might be a picture of cast sheep, um, which is one of the main dangers that sheep face. And not, not that there's a cast on it, but I'll explain it in a second. Um, so this is again a pretty pathetic thing. Sheep can become cast when somehow they get rolled over on their backs with their legs in the air and they cannot get back up without assistance. They're just flailing around bleeding helplessly. And though it might sound humorous to us, this is actually no laughing matter to the sheep because after a few hours, the gases began to collect in the belly without any way of coming out. And, and the pressure then becomes to begins to cut off the circulation in their legs. And on a hot day, a sheep can be dead in a few hours. In addition, predators see a sheep being helpless like that, and they start to gather around. And in fact, vultures will begin to start pecking at the sheep long before he is dead. And not to mention wolves and real predators like that. So once a sheep is cast, he has no recourse then other than to wait for the shepherd. And the shepherd must then go and retrieve him. Since by then the sheep will have lost all feelings in his legs, the shepherd would then have to manually massage his legs until the feeling returns, along with tending to any other injuries that was incurred in the process. Now, I think this is a good analogy for us. Like sheep, I think people get cast too. We get stuck by the trials and tribulations of life and we can no longer move forward. We're easily disheartened and we frequently wander off and fall into the ditch of our own sin, which so easily entangles us but then the good shepherd comes to rescue us. In fact, in, in Psalm 147, it says that he heals our broken hearts and he binds up our wounds. Talking of course of spiritual wounds. He restores our soul. 
but that's not all. David, besides restoring our soul, David says in uh, verse three, he guides me in paths of righteousness. And I think this is somewhat related. This is directly referring to sanctification. That is, the good shepherd makes us walk paths that develop more righteousness in our character. One of the worst things that, um, about life, about this hard journey of life, is being under the knowledge that we're broken, right? But feeling powerless to change. And I know you've been there, um, especially before your, uh, your conversion. That's the human condition. Maybe you struggle with anger. You consistently hurt those you love. And you hate yourself for it, but you can't seem to change. Maybe you struggle with lust and pornography and you're ashamed of it and you swear to yourself every time that this will be the last time. But you can't seem to stop going back. And David is saying, the good shepherd will lead you out of this but by providing right paths, by providing paths of righteousness. He'll lead you to a place where you are free from these sins and where you can have a clean conscience. What a blessing it is to have a clean conscience, isn't it? You can sleep at night. And that's what the shepherd will provide. He'll do it all for, in verse three it says, for his name's sake. Now at first glance, this might seem like a somewhat strange uh, little phrase to add in here, that he'll do it for his name's sake. But I think we have to realize that that statement makes it the most, co- most comforting statement of all. Why? Because in this statement, we find the ultimate assurance that God will do what he says, that God will keep his promise here in the first two verses. Why? Because by saying it's for his name's sake, God is putting his righteous reputation on the line. His reputation is on the line. This is fantastic grounds of assurance because it means that God keeping his promise does not depend on, listen, how I perform. Remember what God says to the Israelites in Ezekiel 36. It says, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which, by the way, you have profaned among the nations. See, God will keep all his promises of provision that we've talked about because he will stop at nothing to uphold his holy name, regardless of what you and I do. That's comfort. And that nails in these promises. Now that's the first guarantee of the good shepherd, the good shepherd's provision. Now we'll look at the second guarantee, which is the good shepherd's protection. Look down in verse four. Even though I walk through the what? The valley of the shadow of death. This is maybe one of the most uh, familiar verses in the entire Bible. Now, what is the valley of the shadow of death? Um, that's, the answer to that question is probably a lot less familiar. This is a term that David uses to describe the deepest and darkest moments of his life. Remember, this is a man that we're talking about who has buried his own children. He knows a thing or two about dark moments. This is a, this is a place where we confront the worst that life has to offer. Sickness, grief, sorrow, heartache, frustration, disappointment, loss. We have all been there, haven't we? And if we're not there right now, 
we surely will be there again. That's how life is. And you see, God doesn't prevent Christians from going through these valleys, but he, it says in the verse, leads us through these dark valleys. He leads us. He doesn't speak the valley out of existence like he could, but instead he leads, uh, leads us through the dark valleys. He lets us go through them and he is with us all the way. And you know what? Ultimately, the valleys are for our own good. Remember, and this is interesting, this is true for Jesus as well, right? Remember, Jesus' valley of the shadow of death, you could say was in the garden the night before he was crucified when he fell on his face and prayed saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not I will, but as you will. It's in Matthew 26, 39. See, Jesus was praying that God would spare him from this valley, but God did not spare his own son. Jesus had to go through his cross, but you know what? Ultimately, it was for Jesus' glory and good. It says even in Hebrews 12 too, that Jesus endured the cross for the what? The joy set before him. And similarly, our good shepherd is leading us through these valleys for the joy set before us. We will find great joy when we come out the other end. Remember that when you're in the valley. Every valley we navigate is for our own good. Um, in, in 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul says, for momentary light affliction. Now, you have to understand when Paul says for momentary light affliction, he doesn't mean light affliction. He means like people killing people and you know, persecuting, heavy persecution in the church. It says momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. He's saying the glory that's waiting for us makes these momentary light afflictions look like nothing. That's what it is. And, and that's what David is saying here too. So notice that in back in Psalm 23, um, notice that in the verse, the real danger isn't actually the valley. That's not the real danger. The real danger is what? What does it say in there? The real danger is fear, right? I fear no evil. That's what David declares. I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. See, the real danger is fear. But for believers, for those who have the good shepherd, there is no fear. Why? Because we know that nothing in the valley can ultimately harm us. Our shepherd will not let it. He won't let it. We have a powerful shepherd who, in fact, has already told us how the story ends. He already told us how the journey ends, hasn't he? The journey ends like this. And it's in the end of the psalm. The shepherd will lead us safely home. That's how the whole thing ends. That's the ending of the story. So knowing that, we can trust in this shepherd and not fear. That's the privilege of a believer who has a shepherd with him as he navigates these valleys. Now, part of, it says in the verse, how the shepherd leads us, to, it leads us is to comfort us. He comforts us. And what does the shepherd use to comfort us as we walk through the dark valleys of life? What does it say? His what? His rod and his staff. Now, it is interesting. The, the rod 
a shepherd would carry both a rod and a staff and the rod is the shepherd's instrument of protection. You know, when a wolf came or a bear came, out would come the rod and the rod would be what would be uh, the weapon to drive away the animals and um, the, attacking, the attacking forces. The staff then is, uh, is also an instrument that the shepherd carries with him. And this is an instrument of authority. Um, it was used so that the, shepherd, the, the sheep could, could, could easily pick out the shepherd, but it was also used as an instrument of discipline. All right, so when a sheep, a sheep would get out of line, it would start wandering off or string, uh, the staff would come out. Not the rod, right? The staff would come out and, and the sheep would then be made to get back in line and follow the master again. So what this is saying with the rod and the staff is that the shepherd is able to defend us both from the external forces that would attack us, all right? But he's also able to defend us from ourselves, from our own waywardness and our own sinfulness. Neither of those things are hard for the shepherd or hard problems for the shepherd. Not even our own sin can thwart the shepherd's plan to lead us safely through the valley. That is a guarantee, right? But not only that, in verse five, this just gets even, uh, even more amazing. God protects us from our enemies while we dine in luxury, all right? So here it is. Look at verse five. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That's what the verse says. And now at this point, the picture shifts just a bit. And, and you know, different commentators have different opinions on how, what to make of this. Um, some people, he thinks he's abandoning the sheep metaphor entirely. Um, but others point out that the whole thesis statement of the psalm, and I agree, the whole the- thesis statement is that the Lord is my shepherd. And that sort of carries through. So I think I agree most with one commentator who says that what's happening here can be pictured as the sheep the shepherd now finishing the day's journey and he's retiring to his tent for supper. But incredibly, this shepherd invites his sheep to dine with him in his tent. Now, this shepherd views his sheep not just as livestock, right? Now, an ordinary shepherd would just view his sheep as livestock. And in fact, um, an ordinary shepherd is raising his sheep for the express purpose of maybe using it as a sacrifice later or, or selling its wool. It's a selfish type of relationship that the, sh- the shepherd truly has with his sheep. But this shepherd is different. He views his sheep not as livestock, but as friends and honored guests. What kind of a shepherd does that? This is an incredible picture. You'll notice in the verse, who's the one preparing the table? Is it the sheep? No, it's the shepherd. The shepherd, God himself, is the one who is serving the food. Not servants of God. God, He doesn't say the shepherd hires his servants to come and give you his food, but it's God himself. After a long day, when the shepherd has spent himself serving the sheep all day, defending them from enemies, protecting them from their own waywardness, now, at the end of the day, when the shepherd is supposed to have an opportunity to rest, he continues to be the servant. That's how God is for us, isn't he? he? Everything that we have in this life, spiritually and physically, is given to us by God. None of it is from ourselves. And even when we get to heaven, 
There's nothing that we can do to give God anything that, to give God anything. He's going to be the one serving us. That's amazing. He, it says he meticulously prepares a meal, right? This is not just throwing some bales of hay at you. Here, you know, have some, some hay. Um, he cooks up a gourmet meal for you. And I want to stress, you might be thinking that this verse here is talking about some sort of heavenly scene after death. But no, it's talking about this life. This whole psalm is talking about this life. Because David is dining in the presence of his what? His enemies. And there are no enemies once we get to heaven. So this is a feast that we enjoy in this life. And I think that's, this is the most remarkable part of the meal is that in, it's in the presence of our enemies. Who's ever had a meal in the presence of your enemies? Um, not, not often. And, and this is a reminder that although a Christian life is one of continual warfare, right? That's what we've been learning in Ephesians, that we ought to take up our armor and be ready because life is a war. This is a reminder that God wields authority even over our enemies. They're nothing to him. God is able to make them stop mid-attack, prepare a leisurely meal for us, and then make them watch us as we dine. This is the power of God towards us. Our enemies are completely helpless to attack us. And verse 5 continues, you have anointed my head with oil. Now, I don't think we really get this today, but to be anointed with oil um, is actually a great honor. Um, to, to be clear, this isn't some sort of ceremonial anointment. Uh, there's actually a special Hebrew word uh, speaking of that, um, and that's not the one being used here. So, so this word more, it's more like make luxuriant, all right? Anointing is kind of like make your hair luxuriant with oil. And one commentator says, uh, this word calls to mind a happy life of having a head of, of hair well rubbed with olive oil. Um, this sounds downright disgusting to me, all right? I mean, I, I don't think um, I'd be very happy if anybody rubbed my hair with oil, but in David's time, it was an honor reserved for the most special guests. And you may remember there are several occasions in the Gospels where women did this to Christ. Christ himself. And here in this verse, it's not Christ who's being anointed with oil. It is us. The shepherd views us, his sheep, as the most special and honored guests. That just boggles my mind. And then in verse 5, back in verse 5, David says, my cup overflows. This is just abundant blessing after blessing. Um, he doesn't just satisfy us our every need. He lavishes us, lavishes us, and lavishes us to the point of almost wastefulness. Um, God has not, be, has not been stingy to us at all. He may not have given you much material wealth, all right, um, as you may have liked, because none of that could be taken with us anyways. You don't need it. It's useless. It just pulls you down in a sense. But he certainly turned on the spigot for spiritual blessings, fully to the on position. The picture being painted in this verse is almost like an overbearing waiter at a restaurant, right? Who is standing at your elbow and he's just sitting there and constantly filling your cup. 
even as it overflows on the table. He doesn't stop. And as much as you drink, it just gets right, filled right up. It's never even a little bit empty. Remember way back in Ephesians, in Ephesians 1.3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. God has not held even one blessing back. And by the way, that's in the present tense. He has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing. It's not something we have to wait for. And remember, this is all in this life. God provides refreshment and joy as our enemies look on helplessly, powerless to stop it. It's no wonder then that David says in verse six, surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. This is really the summary statement, I think, of all the previous verses. This is sort of wrapping up his life in a nutshell. This is David's experience. The word here for follow really is much more aggressive than the word that we have in English. It's, it means to pursue. It means that goodness and loving kindness will pursue me all the days of my life. See, we don't have to seek out this goodness and loving kindness by ourselves. The text is saying that the goodness and the loving kindness will hunt us down. They'll chase us down. We can't hide from it. That's the reality of being a Christian. Believer, haven't you been hunted down by goodness and loving kindness? Everywhere you turn, wherever you look, the shepherd guarantees it. He guarantees that you will. Goodness and loving kindness will pursue you, listen to me, even when you're in the deepest valley. They don't lose track of you there. You will enjoy the love and care and joy and honor and protection and provision of the shepherd all the days of your life. That's your birthright as a Christian. Well, back to our outline, we've seen two guarantees of the good shepherd. We've said that he provides abundantly for us. He protects us from our enemies as well as our own waywardness. But finally, there's a third and final promise. And that is, he will guaranteed bring us home to paradise. The journey of life, this was a harsh and unforgiving landscape filled with valleys, right? But we're not just wandering aimlessly, all right? The shepherd has a destination in mind. Look at the, half, the second half of uh, verse six. He says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord, what? Forever. It's not always going to be in the wilderness. That's not going to be our lives forever. Someday we will enjoy intimate fellowship with God forever. There's hardly anything more intimate than inviting somebody to come and live in your house, right? Um, how many people would you invite to live in your house? Um, I don't know if you'd invite me to live in your house. Um, that's an intimate thing. Um, the, the shepherd here is literally adopting his sheep as his family member. This is the big blessing upon top of all of the others. It was, it's what makes the whole journey worth it. The shepherd will not fail to lead you home. See, when you're alive on earth, good things pursue you, but when you get to eternity, the good things are right there. The blessing really begins. 
There's no more valley. There's no more shadow of death, no more enemies, no more barrenness. And along the way, nothing poses a threat to you or can prevent you from arriving safely. That is the guarantee of the shepherd. So we saw three guarantees in this Psalm made by our shepherd, provision, protection, and the promise of paradise. Well, there's, there's one more thing that I'd like to show you about this Psalm. And to do that, we actually have to go to the New Testament. Up to now, we've been talking about the shepherd, but in reality, the shepherd is not some nameless entity. The shepherd has a name and his name is Jesus Christ. And it's so important to see this. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 10, John chapter 10. Now keep in mind what John is saying in John chapter 10. Um, he full, he well knows the Psalm, right? This is, um, he, he knows this Psalm very well in the back of his mind and, and his audience knows it as well. John chapter 10, uh, we'll pick up in verse 11. This whole section, by the way, is about the shepherd. Um, but let's just pick up at verse 11. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Um, interestingly enough, um, when it says the Lord is my shepherd, that word Lord can be translated I am. So it says I am is my shepherd. And Jesus is saying I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Okay, that's the bad shepherd. <laughs> He flees because he is a hired hand and not concerned about the sheep. Jesus says, but I am the good shepherd and I know my own and they know me even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. See, Jesus is clearly identifying himself as a shepherd in Psalm 23. And when he does, I don't want you to miss it. He is very clearly claiming himself to be God. Um, they understood that. Look down in verse 25. Jesus answered, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are what? Not of my sheep. The sheep, sorry, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they what? They follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Clearly, it is Jesus himself who is the good shepherd. He's not the shepherd of everyone. Not everyone is of his flock, but those who are, those who are believers in him and those who have trusted in him, repented of their sins and follow him as Lord, his sheep know his voice and no one can snatch them away. And he will lead us to eternal life. This is our great shepherd. Jesus Christ. Now, as we close, I'd like you to consider what life might look like on the other side without the good shepherd. What, might, what life might look like to one who is not part of God's flock. This person then would still have to walk through the rough landscape of life, but now he has to do it alone. And now that we understand what the psalm means, I think it might be an interesting exercise to look about what Psalm 23 would sound like if you 
took the shepherd out of it. All right. So other people have tried to do this as well. Um, that's, you know, how I got the idea, but, but, um, but this is my version. <laughs> and uh, so I apologize, but here we go. Just listen to this and see if you agree with the anti-Psalm of 23. On, I am on my own. I have lots of stuff, but I am never satisfied. Verse two, I can't find any rest. I'm constantly worried about my needs because no one else will provide for me. Verse three, I seem broken inside, but there's no one to restore me. I am full of lies and anger and depravity, but I can't seem to change no matter how hard I try. Verse four, as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I am just alone and afraid. No one truly comforts me. Verse five, my enemies constantly attack me. Nobody truly values me and my life is empty and meaningless. Verse six, surely tragedy and disappointment will follow me all the days of my life. And then I will suffer in hell forever. Which one would you like to be your Psalm? Would you rather traverse the hard path of life with or without the good shepherd? I don't know about you, but I'm sure glad that the Lord is my shepherd. Let's close with the word of prayer. Father, I pray that you would help us to remember the Psalm in the darkest valleys of our lives. Even Lord, in the good times, we remember that when the valleys come, we'll be prepared for it. Lord, I pray that you would help us to know that we're undertaking the journey of life, whether we like it or not. And help us, Lord, to keep our eyes fixed on our good shepherd, Jesus Christ. We do have a shepherd, and he cares for, for us much more than we know. Lord, help us to understand and believe this, for our problem is we so often forget. And we think we're walking it alone. But Lord, help us to remember your promises of provision of protection, and that ultimately you will lead us home. Lord, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing.